Hello, everyone, and welcome to our unnamed Philharmonic Euro Trip podcast. My name is Will. I'm Osneev. And I'm Davison. And today we get to be discussing what we ha- did in Vienna. Our sponsor for today's episode is caffeine in all forms, <laughs> because today we had an 8:30 to 8:30 a.m. to 1:30 a.m. day. So that's a full. We we had a, we, we we needed that caffeine for our full schedule. Oh yeah. All right, so uh, why don't we just jump into today? Um, so being the fifth day, I'm pretty sure we were all a little um, not exhausted, but we're all kind of getting the groove of this trip and kind of figuring out um, what it's like just being abroad. And um, today we had a rehearsal that started around nine o'clock, um, and then we ended up having some free time around noon to go and get some lunch. Um, and we had a little bit longer lunch today. I think we had like two hours. Mm-hmm. Um, so after lunch, we ended up having a sort of get together at the Belvedere Castle, which is composed of a southern and northern palace. And then in between them, um, there is actually a garden um, for the prince who owned them. So if you guys maybe want to discuss it a little bit or just talk about what we did there. Yeah. So today, the palace, um, the palace is. One functions as sort of a museum of how this prince lived. So it shows his living quarters and um, the different rooms he had. And we did not go to that part of the museum, um, but we did go to the part of his estates that has been converted to an art museum. So the art museum houses many, many pieces, um, including a lot of very famous artists and art that we can't, you know, artists that we can't see in the United States. And compared to the other museums we've been to before, this one had a much wider range of uh, types of art. Um, So there was some of the medieval art, but it also went into Impressionism and that sort of thing. Yes, and one of the main, main pieces of art that was shown was the kiss by Gustav Klimt. Mm-hmm. This was basically considered their prime e- exhibit mm-hmm. for when we arrived. So what did you all think of it? I thought it was a really um, great piece. I, when you look at the kiss, it, what really stands out is like the, the two figures, obviously, that mm-hmm. are like locked in this like, uh, really passionate embrace. Um, I found it interesting that when we were listening to the audio recording, I sort of looked at it and kind of was like in my head, I knew that this was a great piece, but I was trying to figure out what made it so amazing to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the audio guide ended up talking about like how it was painted and how it kind of illustrates um, a, a couple of different art styles. But mm-hmm. um, one of the things that kind of popped out to me the most was just the different illustrations between um, the man and the woman. So each one had like their own unique patterns. Um, the man having a more rectangular designs on his robes, and then the uh, the woman ended up having uh, more rounded shapes like circles and mm-hmm. ovals. Um, and I just think um, there was a lot more behind the painting that we, or at least I didn't fully understand until, you know, taking a deeper look at it. Um, I thought the blend of the art styles was most interesting for me. <clears throat> when I first looked at it, I, without knowing the history... I was unimpressed. Yeah. I'll admit that. I it didn't speak to me like some of the other pieces there and was felt almost just showy and extravagant just to be extravagant. Mm. But the impressive part of it 
is less of the painting itself, but how it challenged multiple artistic standards of the time. It was not religious. It focused on romance. And then it was blending art styles from both the current times and from more of the medieval and earlier pieces of art. Mm -hmm. So it was a challenge and not just a standard piece of the time. Yeah. And definitely the way they did that through uh, this painting literally shimmered. Uh, Some of the the robes were painted with gold leaf. Uh, And one of the things that I noticed uh, that the audio guide did help out with, but the this couple is standing on the edge of the cliff um which i think is a really big part of why it's so compelling uh because you can see the conflict you know the inner conflict of the painting with this couple that's you know having this beautiful kiss uh but somehow they're still at the edge they're at the edge of this cliff we don't know you know where it's going or why they're there uh but we can see that conflict and see the love and beauty on the edge of potentially doom um (laughs) so yeah so that was really awesome i did think that the we i don't know if you guys went on any of the tours with one of our professors but they also had some very interesting uh commentary and with the audio guides as well i think that's a really great way um to help us kind of notice things and make uh you know they they would just give us prompts to see things in a different way for ourselves. For example, um, the audio, like Davison said, the audio guide, you know, showed us the differences in the man's and the woman's robes, which obviously to the, you know, we probably noticed without recognizing it, but being able to see that uh, really deepens the, deepens the, the way we can perceive it and increases the value we can get from viewing the painting. Right. And I think um, one of the other great things about this museum that we went to was just, um, like we said earlier, how many paintings there were there that kind of stood out to us. Um, So one of the ones that I wanted to talk about was the Evil Mothers, um, which is one of the first ones that I actually saw in the museum. Um, It's painted by Giovanni Segantini, I believe. Um, He painted it in 1894. Um, and basically, if, if our listeners haven't seen this painting before, it's basically um, a really um, long landscape of a snowy and mountainy area. Um, and then near the right edge of the painting, there's a woman who's sort of being um, wrapped and like embraced by this tree. Um, and... Uh, if you look closer at the painting, there's actually multiples of these trees in the background. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's called the Evil Mothers is because um, when this painting wa- um, was created, um, the meaning of it was actually um, to illustrate mothers who had aborted their children or um, mistreated them. And it's they're sort of living in this purgatorial state where they now have to take care of their children um, until they've grown and sort of fulfilled their um, what would have been considered their motherly duties at the time. So is the tree the mother or is the figure, you know, captured in the tree the mother? Right. So the tree, um, at least from what I was able to gather mm-hmm. and sort of my interpretation of it, is the tree is sort of t- supposed to represent their duty as a mother and sort okay. of being stuck to that and sort of being wrapped into it, I guess. Okay. But yeah, the mother is actually um, 
sort of the figure that's trapped in this tree. Wow. Um, and then um, she's actually nursing her child. And it's, um, it just, it stood out to me because not only was it a really like beautiful painting, it was also, um, the meaning was just really powerful to me. Yeah. yeah. A lot of the paintings throughout the exhibit were very political and topical. Yes. The, for me, one of the most powerful paintings I saw was a piece called Exhaustive Strength, where the, there was a single lamp shining the light into a room. On the, on, in the light and on the bed, there was a small child sleeping. But in the dark, in a corner on the floor, a mother lied, passed out mm-hmm. and was discussing the trials of poverty and how the people at that time struggled not only just to make ends meet, but, to, but to even live. Mm-hmm. And then there was another piece called Fool's Ship that was a ship, uh, with a bunch of scenarios of the crimes and and foolish activities of humanity from uh, wanton sexuality to abuses of power to greed and gambling and mixed that with demons throughout the ship capturing those who were partaking in these actions. Mm-hmm. And you get to see see artists commenting on their views of morality. Mm. Right. And I think that's one of the things that I've been noticing the most um, throughout this trip is just how different artists are able to portray their, not just their views, but like they're able to convey a message to Mm. people just through art. They're able to do so much um, that I think I never really realized when I was back in America. So um, just... I don't know. It's it's very um, it's very interesting to see how these paintings and pieces can be so topical. Same thing with music too, though. You know, um, the biggest example I can you know the first example that comes to mind is Shostakovich's music, uh, which is literally you know which is a lot of his symphonies. You can hear the you know his his you know his grievances against the you know those communist regimes uh, in his in his music, uh, which is really powerful. And again, just like in the exile art uh, exhibit that we saw the other day, these people, they, it, what, it didn't go unnoticed. You know, their, their, their music, their pieces, their style, and what they, what they believed in through their art didn't go unnoticed. So that's why many of them were, you know, they were banished or cut off or, you know, prevented from making further music that would, um, uh, I guess, conflict with, you know, whoever was in power at the time and didn't want them there. Yes. I mean, Shostakovich's Fifth Symphony was a direct response to World War II, mm-hmm. that the final high A, uh, that high A, I think it was eighth notes, repeating for almost a minute. Oh, yes. Was, is... We're meant to be screams. Right. It's the art, the artists, the musicians, and the writers, they are all communicating and talking about the world they live in. None of these paintings and pieces existed in a vacuum. They were shaped by artists who lived and breathed Mm -hmm. and had views of their own. 
So being able to see a wide variety of viewpoints throughout time in these exhibits is very enlightening mm-hmm. on how we view art. I think the reason this art from sort of a later time period than the Kunsthistorisches Museum per se um, is that the conflicts were more relatable to us, whereas in that medieval art, it's very biblical um, and it portrays scenes, you know, from longer ago where, you know, humans and their their desires and drives and you know, everything that humans are was the same, but the way it's portrayed in this later art is more relatable to us where we might not feel so much of that power in a biblical, in a biblical scene uh, or something, you know, that they probably felt much more strongly about uh, back then. Uh, another way that I thought that the museum could, you know, made a way... Uh, Another way I thought that the museum was able to relate to more people is through a series of tactile paintings. So next to the kiss and quite a few other, um, you know, main, more influential pieces in the museum uh, was a tactile painting. So it was about a square foot block of plastic uh, that had the main details in the in the painting um, carved out, and this was accompanied by a caption in Braille uh, with the name, the title of the painting, and uh, you know everything else that would be in that visible um, you know artist's statements you know caption. What do we call those? You know the the little blocks to the side of the painting that has the title. Uh, And this was really awesome because it allows another, it allows people who cannot see to also experience these paintings and know what, you know, what us, you know, we who are blessed to have our sight uh, can see so they can also experience that beauty. Um, And I just thought that was really interesting because I've never seen that in a museum before. Uh, And it made me, it made me really appreciate that the museum did that and that, you know, that's something that we thought to help uh, other people enjoy through that tactile painting. Mm. I don't know if you guys touched any. I was kind of, I'm kind of a germaphobe, so I was nervous to touch it because I could, you know, I could kind of tell it was like a very, (laughs) it was a very touched um, thing, but it was really, really cool. Yeah. It allowed, with that and the audio guides, it allowed anyone to get a full experience of these visual art pieces true true neat Uh, let's move on to our next big activity of the day so at night uh, we went to see a performance of the Wiener Philharmonica not to be confused with the Vienna Philharmonic um, but this is another uh, good orchestra from that performs regularly in Vienna what do you guys think I I personally enjoyed the piano concerto. It was very conflicted and had a lot of drama, mm-hmm. especially in between the first and second movement. I was less of a fan of the symphony. I felt more that it kind of just went on mm-hmm. and didn't have that almost fight scene in the previous concerto. Right. I feel the final uh, piece that the symphony actually played, I felt like 
it was a little more interesting than the other ones. I kind of am the opposite, I guess. Um, but um, I I wouldn't say that I um, found it more interesting, but I definitely could see the differences be- between the pieces because I feel like I was paying more attention to mm-hmm. how they were playing it than what they were playing because I, I don't know about you guys, but I wasn't actually familiar with these pieces beforehand. Nope. Um, I don't think anyone was, really. Yeah, so I um, kind of had a took a closer look at it, I think, than I would have if I had already listened to it. So it was a good experience sort of hearing this music for the first time and seeing how uh, they chose to interpret the piece. Yeah, the it also was odd seeing the general culture in this concert. Oh, yeah. (laughs) In the U.S., these symphonies aren't treated with the type of reverence Mm. that it is in Vienna. It was dead silent when the pieces were being performed. Mm -hmm. Not even, people weren't even coughing or sneezing. It was silent. Mm -hmm. In many of the modern concerts, you will hear almost a low rumble of whispers, some coughing, someone unwrapping (laughs) candy. Mm -hmm. They don't care. Here, it was clear, if you made noise, you were not going to be liked. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I saw a couple of dirty glances coming across the room. Not, not directed at me, but mm-hmm. I definitely saw some people's heads turning whenever they heard something. But yeah, I, I definitely made the same observation. People, I feel like, especially in Vienna, are so much more respectful of the music um, because I feel like sometimes when people go to concerts here in America, they maybe aren't going for the same reason that they do oh, there. Mm-hmm. I definitely think that in um, um, maybe it's in Europe, but definitely in Vienna, it's just um, these people have such a, um, again, respect, but also love for music. So the concert was only two pieces long, granted 20 minutes. Or so pieces, yes. <laughs> um, you know, each with four movements, you know, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, but when it was over, we were kind of like, "What? It's done." Um, and then we, you know, we headed out to the lobby. We went to coach chat because we were, you know, again, we were tired. We were ready to go have a break before the next event uh, of the evening. Um, but then the piano, um, the the pianist, the soloist from earlier in the concert. Um, uh, well, everyone gathered around uh, to hear him play sort of an encore piece, um, and he played two sort of, he played one thing that he composed, another thing from the movie we would see later that evening, uh, which was, you know, which was really fun. Everyone's standing around sipping champagne or wine or, you know, you know, with their spouse and friends uh, around, um, which was really cool. And then after the pianist played, another group came out and we had a night of jazz. So what did you guys think about that? That was amazing. I think um, you guys probably know I'm a huge fan of jazz and I was telling everyone um, how excited I was that they were um, playing this. And I I wasn't sure if they were improvising, but it was definitely um, an awesome performance. Yeah. Um, I also found it interesting how they were shorter. They were much shorter than you would expect for an encore performance. Um, one of the things that I think I noticed was how we had this concert. And like you said, we were kind of like, wait, it's over already? Because I feel like in America, we have these concerts that are like two to three hours long. But here, 
um, they had like this hour long concert. And then we went downstairs for this encore performance um, that was super interesting because they had multiple different people playing. Yeah. Um, and I think it was um, sort of more of a, uh, you know, relax, enjoy the music. Don't worry too much about how much noise you're making. But um, it was definitely still a big appreciation of the music. So you're kind of experiencing it. Had that blend of traditional appreciation and then a casual, more fun-loving style. Mm -hmm. You could tell that all of these musicians, you know, they weren't just untrained, you know, street musicians who can, you know, by all means, though, they can produce some great jazz. Um, but you could, you know, these musicians were all classically trained, but to see them get up there and have fun um, and play jazz. I know for me, the standout performer was the, there was a girl probably younger than us who played violin effortlessly, um, but she also halfway through their performance started to sing um, and she was singing jazz and she was so good and her voice was so sweet and young and full of energy. Um, I thought that was so great. And I think that kind of mirrors just the whole that whole encore performance in general because you know we're these we're classically you know we came to the concert to listen to classical music and you know enjoy the symphony um but at the end of the night we kick back and drink our champagne and listen to jazz and you know have a good relaxed time anyway yeah. so that girl had she not only sang beautifully she sang in the right style of the jazz. Oh, she yeah. had that tang to it that you can hear in jazz singers. Right. Her tone and timbre was just awesome. Yeah. She was so amazing. <laughs> it, she she totally inspired me. Watch out, guys. That's I'm gonna you're gonna hear some interesting things from Osneev. <laughs> I could sing like that. That'd close out the podcast yes. with some jazz Yeah, we'll singing. close out. I'll, um, I'll show you my early. Um, just kidding. No one wants to hear that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> So definitely a success. Caffeine helped. <laughs> yes. Maybe um, probably not all the way through the day, though, because the next thing that we ended up doing today was um, our movie screening of The Third Man. And this started at 1030. It was 1030, 1045. Something 1045 like, start. Yeah, yep. something like that. And it was uh, it was definitely a long movie, but um, I think we can all agree it was definitely um, worth it. Yeah. So the third man is about um, an American Western writer who travels to Vienna to where he's going to stay uh, with his friend, but when he arrives, he knocks on you know, his friend's apartment door, um, and no one answers. He finds out from the butler that his friend had died shortly, um, shortly before his arrival. Uh, so when he hears different accounts of his friend's, you know, the scene of his friend's death, he finds some inconsistencies. Uh, and so he takes it upon himself as a Western writer, you know, he kind of uses his um, his creative brain to sort of try and get to the bottom of it himself. And so he finds out some things about his friend that he didn't know before. Um, and this is all set in Vienna. It's a classic. Yeah. I definitely think that it was um, funny how one of our 
um, chaperones told us that if you have if you don't go to see this movie and you go to bed early and don't show up for some reason you haven't experienced Vienna yeah. and I thought it was just it was a really interesting movie because it was a blend of sort of a satirical comedy almost mm -hmm. but it also had serious themes to it and um, there were some twists in the movie um, like you said he finds out some things about his friend and it's just it's definitely a um, a very good movie and I, so, I, I sort of think we underestimated it because some people I know were a little hesitant to go to such a late screening when we were already <laughs> so low on sleep. <laughs> the um, the silly humor and light co comedic aspects almost juxta becomes a juxtaposition with the very darker tone that it reveals as this film takes place in occupied Austria. So after World War II, it got divided between uh, the UK, the US, uh, the USSR, and France. Mm -hmm. And in that time, in an occupation, it's, it's a police state. The, there's usually not enough food and medicine go around, so the black market was there. It was, and it was a blend of a murder mystery and a crime film discussing the how the basically hardships twisted people. Mm -hmm. The inspector there was an, may have been an honest man, but he was, he was a hard man. Mm -hmm. He was darker and he was not afraid to do what needed to be done. The main leads slowly twisted and became more and, and more cold mm -hmm. as the film went on as the comedic and silly outset started fading into this dark, almost gritty tone. Right. And then there were a few romantic subversions that really ended the film well. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I uh, wanted to mention too, that just, um, I didn't really think, um, of the fact that these characters sort of, um, became, more I don't know I don't know how to describe it they it was it was very dark how they sort of um, were so heavily impacted by um, Vienna during this time and I just the ending of the film it just really shows how dark it became I guess and the characters changed so much um, and it was it, it wasn't disturbing but it was very just it was almost heartbreaking mm -hmm. to see like what this character had to do at the end and then sort of the resolution and um it was almost a satisfying finale because it was unsatisfying in that sense yeah yeah and, you know hearing this story watching this story unfold uh and knowing that this movie um you know everything about where it took place in this historical context i think kind of helped us give a it helped us get a different perspective on where you know the place we were um, and that, you know, contributed to the stories that we saw in, you know, the buildings and the streets and everything. I remember the next day we were walking around in a district that we hadn't been in before and we saw a third man museum. Mm. Uh, and so anyway, I think it kind of gave us another way of seeing, um, seeing where we were and seeing the place around us and how it wasn't always the same way, but these events are important to making it 
what it is today. Mm. So, um, I think that's about it for today. We're getting a little long, so we'll cut out highs and lows for today. But we hope you enjoyed this episode. We hope you'll join us for tomorrow's episode. Uh, and I think that is all for this episode of the Unnamed Podcast. So, I'm Osneve. I'm Davison. And I'm Will. And see you next time.